0: evening ladies and gentlemen you are listening to the wall of power radio hour this is your host paul metzson tonight we are celebrating the one-year anniversary of our show well one week early but who's counting we've chosen vignettes from over a dozen shows that will give you a little glimpse into the world known as the wall of power radio hour We'd like to thank Chad Larson at the staff at AM 950 for hosting our show, the Minneapolis Media Institute for letting us record at their state-of-the-art studios, and my ace engineer, Brad Knobber, who recently celebrated his 21st birthday, for making this all happen. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. From our debut show, first up is comedian, actor, and my old buddy, Tom Arnold. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am very honored to have my old buddy and a man who I've considered since I met him to be the funniest man in show business. In fact, I call him the Candyman of Comedy to be joining me by phone where he's out on the road doing stand-up. Ladies and gentlemen, my good buddy, Tom Arnold. Tommy, how are you?
1: It's good to talk to you, Paul. How's everything going back there?
0: It's going good, this is the uh, debut show for the Wall of Power Radio Hour, and uh, we're, I couldn't be happier that you uh, took the time out of your busy schedule to come on the air. Well,
1: wait a minute, are they paying you for this? Sure, surely they're paying you for this. They're,
0: we're. It's When we get a few more sponsors on board, we'll be able to uh, afford gas money, yes.
1: Okay, okay, <laughs> well, okay. Are you getting anything out? Do you get food? Do you get sandwiches or uh, anything no, from Williams Pub?
0: Everything's coming up roses. We uh, okay. We've I'm going to have
1: to manage you apparently too. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, I'm excited. It's good for you to you know because I know you know being a, a musician, you don't get to do something like this, and I'm sure it's great for you.
0: Well, I've been able to run into uh, interesting people like you and Steve McClellan and Willie Walker over my life, and it's fun that I can share you guys and your stories with uh, with the people out there in the listening now, audience. Not all
1: this McClellan, he would be because he was uh, seventy. <laughs> in 1983, so he would be—he's a hundred, right? He's a hundred. He's a hundred.
0: Yeah. and he—he—he he, he only has to use his walker from the car to the club now. But once he's oh, there, great. he's ambulatory. Well, <laughs> is he? Uh, now he was crabby then.
1: <laughs> when things were great, so uh, I can't even imagine his demeanor now. But uh, no, he was boy, boy. We had some fun.
0: Oh, he's uh, and, a, and a brilliant guy, boy. You look back at oh, those shows great. that you and I and David Carr oh, used to go down to and check out at First Avenue and Seventh Street. It was a who's who well, of what the became. The best an
1: part was uh, the best part was after the show, up at his office. The, <laughs> you know, uh, you know the wrestling. Uh, the stuff I mean stuff. It was just so funny and such a great. Uh, you know, because you're right there. He's brilliant. They, bit, they, you know, First Avenue and what they did down there changed, you know, the music business. It certainly changed Minneapolis, but it changed a lot of people's careers. and It was such a different thing. And then we'd go upstairs and get drunk and wrestle until <laughs> six in the morning. So, you know, well, you know, it was a know, lot was, of fun. It well, was a lot of fun.
0: Our other two guests on our debut show. Were Steve McClellan, the music maven who put First Avenue, the world's greatest rock club, on the map, and soul singing legend Wee Willie Walker, they had never met until that afternoon at the show, and this is their conversation.
2: Back when I was first booking the entry in the main room, the West Bank was where the blues were. That's I remember oh, Willie Murphy playing the joint before the Caboos existed. Uh, the Triangle Bar, the Four Hundred Bar, and that's where you went. That was when I was at the before First Avenue even opened.
3: Um, that's back where the music was happening in the West Bank. Well, the Bees actually started in the Four Hundred before. <laughs> that's where we practiced. I was the Willie then. <laughs> oh, but certainly you were. Were you, were you in the Bees? I was the Willie. Oh wow. <laughs> When did Murphy get introduced? Well, you know, I mean, it was was his group, but I was the Willie doing the singing.
2: Oh, this is the first time I've ever heard that.
3: And and Murphy don't want nobody to hear that. (laughs) Although, although I love him, and I know he gives it back.
2: (laughs) Wow, I didn't. Well, I'm going to have to bring that up with Willie next time I see him, or should I not? Oh, please do. (laughs) (laughs) I finally met the Willie
1: from (laughs) Willie and the Bees.
0: We have a keen sense of history on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. I had a nice chat with Ken Martin, head of the Minnesota State DFL, on the 70th anniversary of the founding of the DFL.
1: But also uh, celebrating our 70th um, uh, birthday Uh, on Tuesday, uh, April 15th, was the
4: 70th birthday of the DFL. And and we're traveling around reminding folks about uh, what this uh, historic coalition uh, has done for people in this state.
0: And for those that don't know, at one time there was the Minnesota Democratic Party and the Farmer Labor Party. And on April 15th, 1944, they merged.
1: That's correct. And, you know, it's really interesting history. In 1944, a young uh, uh, college professor named Hubert Humphrey, uh, who was a college professor at McAllister, uh, he helped uh, lead the charge to form these, uh, uh, bring these two parties together and create this uh, wonderful coalition we now know as the DFL.
0: On our second show, we were delighted to have Twin Cities radio legend Tom Miske join us in the studio.
5: Thank you for having me. I'm back on the air. <laughs> what the heck? Well, you took a little
0: uh, you took a little breather. You used to be the last time we heard you was uh, you were rocking late night on WCCO Radio.
5: Yeah, August 1st of last year was the last time I was on and now here. We couldn't be luckier to have you. What happened? Well, I got out of radio because 22 years was enough creatively. I just didn't feel I had the stuff anymore I wasn't uh, Meeting the standards I thought I needed to meet To do a good show And I thought It's probably due to 22 years I should probably uh, Try to find the thrill again Creatively And do something that Gets me feeling like I felt When I was in my 30s And early 40s Doing radio When it was the best thing going uh, I didn't have that feeling anymore That it, it had become a job And it was never supposed To feel like that So I got out And uh Spent the last few months being a 12-year-old kid, just doing nothing. Kind of like when you wake up on a summer day and you walk outside and you just look around, see who's out, see what's going on, see what there is to do. Maybe you sit on a wall, throw rocks. That's what I've been doing and enjoying it. Ride your bike and go fishing, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah.
0: When, When you
5: were a kid, when did you really become enchanted with the radio? It's strange. I never... I never was enchanted with radio as a kid I wanted to be a writer Uh, my old man was a newspaper man my brothers were newspaper men and that's what I wanted to be and that's what I went to school for journalism and I got out and I was writing as a freelance writer for the old reader City Pages Minnesota Monthly and uh, everything was going fine never heard of talk radio really didn't know such a thing existed I knew about music and one day my brother said listen to this and he went over to the am side and turned on don vogel and i'd never heard of such a thing i'd never heard such a show i didn't know you could play around like that on the air I, i didn't know that the only thing i'd ever heard was cco and it sounded pretty straight and that's when i started to think this sounds like a good living you get paid for this this sounds okay And I started out by calling, just being a regular caller. Long before cell phones, I'd pull up to pay phones and call. Got to know Vogel. Vogel got to be friends with me. He was looking to have a sidekick. I joined at $20 a show, afternoon drive, 4 to 6, 1992. And Don was blind, wasn't he? Blind from birth. Hmm. Yeah, it was fascinating. Uh, Did you realize that when you were talking to him over the air? Well, I would hear this, and I thought it was a rumor, or I thought it was shtick. He would say things on the air like, well, I watched a television show last night, and I said, see? See, he's not blind. This is all a (laughs) shtick. But that obviously was just the way he talked. The entertaining thing was when he had me over to his house, and it was summertime, and as we talked, it got more toward twilight, and then dark, and then pretty soon... It was time for me to put down the margarita and go use his restroom, but by that point it was pitch black in the house, and there are no <laughs> lights in a blind guy's house. I guess not. So I'd stumble and trip and fall and find my way to his bathroom, all the while hearing him giggle in the background. Just another <laughs> sighted guy who was the butt of today's joke.
0: We also got a music lesson from our musical guest, Tommy Lieberman, about the style of music called Vocal Vocalese, what the hell does that mean? What the hell does that mean? Well, vocalese, of course, is, uh, is uh, otherwise known, I, I guess, as scat singing, but I think vocalese actually is where you, um, I, I think you'd probably trace that back to John Hendricks and uh, Eddie Jefferson, some of those guys who actually took classic solos of, you know, bebop recordings and great jazz recordings. They would take these beautiful solos and they would write lyrics to them so you'd have people like king pleasure doing moody's mood for love you know uh, there I go there I go there I go there I go and they're just reinterpreting you know they they're taking that solo that beautiful melodic solo that did not exist before that playing and uh, they're writing lyrics to it occasionally we get out of the studio on this particular afternoon we made it up to the tamarack nature center and spoke with nature guide miss amy i'm here at the tamarack nature center with one of the nature guides, Amy. And uh, we're sitting here listening to some wonderfully musical frogs. And Amy's gonna tell us a little bit about what we're hearing.
6: Well, hi, Paul. We are hearing some of
7: Minnesota's frogs and here in Minnesota we have 14 different kinds of frogs and toads, 11 frogs. What you're hearing in this pond is chorus frogs, one of the most common frogs in the Twin City area. You might hear a few um, wood frogs in the background but they are not as common or or prevalent as as the chorus frogs and they are in their Peak of breeding season from, from oh, as soon as the ice goes out until about middle of May, you'll hear the chorus frogs really going. And then the other types of frogs will start chiming in. They have different um, times of year where they're breeding. So,
0: so are we listening to the frogs making whoopee right now? <laughs>
7: <laughs> yes, we are, Paul.
0: <laughs> we will be back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour one-year anniversary show after these messages.
6: Genocide, lost language, rape, isolation, colonization, assault, assault, disease and torture, school, lost family, abuse, relocation, lost customs, allotments, hate reservation. Hate History has taken its toll on our families. Our fathers and grandfathers, our mothers, our grandmothers. They didn't deserve to be raped and abused. I don't deserve to be raped and abused. Today I walk with pride. I'm reclaiming my body, my heritage, and traditional customs that value all living things. I'm learning healthy boundaries and I stand with Minnesota Indian women to end sexual violence. Sponsored by the Minnesota Indian Women Sexual Assault Coalition.
8: Love the Scandinavian feel of Ingebretson's on East Lake Street? Then I invite you to also Ingebretson's Coffee Bar in Norway House on East Franklin Avenue. Our menu includes Nordic waffles, lefse dogs, and Scandinavian pastries and cookies, which pair well with our spring Grove sodas and Viking Viking coffee, especially roasted for us by Peace Coffee. Also, Ingebretson's Coffee Bar is located at 913 East Franklin Avenue and online at Ingebretsons.com. The first vowel is an I, the rest are E's.
9: Fireplaces. This is an important part of our mission at Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces. We know that the fireplace has to work. Work with your life, work with your living space, and also be environmentally smart. Come see us. Learn to burn wise. We have over 35 working units on display at the corner of Riverside and East Franklin Avenue in Minneapolis. Visit our store in person or online at woodlandstoves.com.
6: Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces, out of the ordinary products and services since 1977.
10: This is Bill McClesley,
0: owner of IP House in Minneapolis. Does the thought of upgrading the computers at your office keep you up at night? Change can be overwhelming, especially when it comes to technology. I started IP House with the mission of making technology simple. We provide tech support for businesses just like yours, managing the technical hurdles so you can sleep at night. If your technology has you worried, call us, IP House, 612-337-6337, 612-337-6337. Welcome back to the one-year anniversary show of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. I had a great time chatting with legendary Twin Cities journalist, author, Ely, Minnesota native, and bicycle tour guide, Jim Klobuchar. Speaking of football, Jim, there is a, a great story that I've heard about how you got into not one... But two fist fights with Vikings coach Norm Van Brocklin.
11: Well, uh, first of all, let me preface by saying anybody who got into a fist fight with Van Brocklin one time would probably not want to do it a second time. Which, uh, <laughs> it's, so I, there was only one time. And uh, yeah, that's a story. And I didn't write it. Uh, I didn't write it until um, Dutch was gone uh, and his life was over. And. Um, I think then I shared it uh, in my column, whatever. But what happened was that he and I uh, pretty got got along pretty well, and uh, he was a sharp-tongued guy, uh, very perfect uh, mentality as a football coach. He was an all all-pro, all-pro quarterback, of course, and could be sullen, angry. Um, in any case, uh, he and I got along pretty well, and uh, we had spasms when we'd have good times together and talk and talk and talk, and other times when we wouldn't. Uh, anyhow, we were, the Vikings were playing, this was about 1962 or 63, they were playing the Lions in Detroit, and the Lions were a very good football team, the best uh, with Green Bay in the league. And and uh, so it's was at the Sheraton Hotel overnight, and uh, it got to be about 11.30, and I was uh, in the lounge uh, talking to uh, Burt Rose, who was the general manager of the Vikings, and Van Brockton didn't like any administrative people in football, unless you played the game or Coach the Game, you were nothing, uh, and <laughs> so... And he, I, he stuck his head through his beaded curtain he, he motioned me to come out in the lobby where he was. So I did. He what are you doing talking to him? I said, the general manager of the team. Why? He said, Well, he said, yeah, I don't like it. And, I said, and he grumbled and, and he was trying to set up some kind of argument. And plus, he'd had a few. <laughs> and uh, and so, so we stood there. And then he said, Well, I don't like the way that they're looking at this. And he said. He said, "Plus, he said, uh, you know, we, this has been coming up for a while." He said, "Let's go out and have it out." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Let's go outside." And He wanted to fight. <laughs> and the guy's six foot four, six three. I'm five, five eight, something like that. And uh, I said. Dutch. I said, nothing good is going to come. And he says, you're damn right it won't. I'm going to flatten you. And I said, come on. I said, said, why do you want to fight? And he said, well, it's the way we're going to settle this. And so I said, all right. He said, look, if you don't, he said, you're gutless like all the other reporters. I said, come on. I said, all right, where do you want to go? And he said, he pointed outside. He said, "No." I said, "We're not going outside. I don't. That's going to be a big story if we go outside and people see us fight." So, all right, he said, "Let's go upstairs to my room." So, he lived on the fifth floor of his hotel, the Sheraton Ritz. And, rich. and uh, now there we are. We're in his room, and we're staring at each other. I mean, how do you start a fight? You know, we we kind of liked each other, and uh, so she's so got to do something. So. He throws this long roundhouse right, and I stepped into it on, and grabbed him around the waist. We rolled into the television set and broke it into a million people. <laughs> 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 and, and honor was as waged. <laughs> so,
9: oh, funny. So then
11: the follow-up on it was that I got a phone call at about 4.30 in the morning, and it's Ben and He said, have you had breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's, he was worried that I was going to write the story. All's, you know?
0: all's well that ends well.
11: Yeah, so, so I said, well, he said, yeah, let's go. Let's have breakfast. So he ordered breakfast and, uh, um, and the standard breakfast, scrambled eggs, all the other things. And he had a six-pack of beer. Ordered
0: <laughs> <laughs> the good old days, right? Oh, we had a chance to call Minnesota Native and an actor who's appeared in over 70 films and a dozen television shows, Chris Mulkey at his home in California.
7: There's
11: no business like show business, like no business, I know. Everything about it is appealing.
12: Everything the traffic will allow. No way could you get this.
4: Chris Mulkey.
0: Good morning, Chris Mulkey, Paul Metz calling.
4: Paul Metz, uh, hi, how are you?
0: How are you doing? You're out where, in Malibu?
4: No, I'm the, we're going to Malibu today. Uh, Brian, my friend Brian Del is having a, having a uh, birthday party up there, but today we're having pancakes at our house in Venice, California, wow. and, uh, you know, and talking to you, and I, you were supposed to come. I guess now you're just gonna have pancakes by a telephone, right?
0: <laughs> I know, but they smell really good. You're hilarious. Chris, our mutual friend Guy Drake told me that you have a system of rating actors based on sociability called the hang factor.
4: Oh, the hang factor. The hang.
0: Now tell us about that.
4: Well, the hang factor is if if you're good to be around, you have a high hang factor, you know, and um, uh, especially on the sets, it's important to have, to find the people that you have that have a high hang factor so you don't feel like you don't have any friends in the world, Paul. I have can tell you right now that you have a hang factor of ten, which is the maximum.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
4: Yeah, and so, uh, so there's a lot of like Bobby Duvall has a hang factor of like seven, but he's he, sometimes he gets a little uh, too political for me, and so I have to you know crank him down a little bit, Bobby. But um, but then uh, maybe an eight. I don't know, I, I eat dinner with Bobby Duvall anytime. He's got a 10, yeah, Bobby's got a 10, sorry. There are other people that don't have a, slice Stallone has a hang factor of uh, two.
0: <laughs> On the same show, we had the very special chance of talking with tenor sax legend, Big J McNeely from his home in Watts, California. There's a great story in 1989 you, Big J McNeely, were performing at the Quasi Mono Club in West Berlin the night the Berlin Wall came down. And Cold yeah. War legend has it that Big J McNeely blew down the Berlin Wall in 1989 with his earth-shaking sonic sax torrents, sax torrents outside the Quasi Mono Club in West Germany. Is that true?
4: That's true. <laughs> In fact, it's very true. The fact that when we got off work, uh, we had to walk home because the streets were so crowded, you, you couldn't move. Because we had drove to work, we, we wasn't too far, but we drove to work. But we had to walk home. The streets were just completely packed.
0: You're going to have your birthday next week, aren't you?
4: Oh yeah, I'll be 29 Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah, I mean I'll be 80 87
0: Tuesday, the 29th of April. Yeah. Wow. Well, happy birthday, Jay.
4: All right. Thank you, man.
0: What is your What is your key to your longevity?
4: Well, I, I, you know, like I was telling, like like God said, you got eighty years and a little bit more. You know, you're strong, so I just try. I, I keep my hope in God's kingdom and, and and just don't smoke, don't drink, and just keep cool and uh, and try to continue taking spiritual foods. You
0: know. Well, God bless you, Big J McNeely. We're gonna take it out with uh, our duo rendition of the Gershwin classic, Summertime. We wanna thank you for uh, chatting with us and we sure hope to see you here in the Twin Cities soon.
2: Summertime. Mmm, the even so easy. Official jumping child and the
12: cotton is so high.
0: More on the Wall of Power Radio Hour after these messages.
12: The Two Gingers just can't get enough of Paul Metzah. He's smooth, yet strong. A great mixer and very refreshing. The Two Gingers are his biggest fans. They're at practically every bar, club, and restaurant in Minnesota to see his shows. And now they've taken to following Paul around the country. Texas, New York, Nebraska you never know where you may find the two gingers just ask the bartender for them two gingers whiskey what could happen is it time to downsize
10: but don't know where to start give the house geeks with bricks real estate a call we're experienced in making this process as easy as possible whether it's help with pricing your home assistance in finding movers or any of the other professionals you might need to get your home sold we're here for you take the worry away by giving us a call today at 612-207-5388, that's 612-207-5388, or online anytime at housegeeks.com.
6: Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com, from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Enjoy all the flavors of Milton's, where they specialize in dishes like grilled jerk chicken, shrimp and grits, and much more. All made from scratch. Pick from Milton's large selection of beer and wine and finish it off with desserts like Bananas Foster. Milton's also serves breakfast every day starting at 7.30 a.m. The Seward Co-op Creamery Cafe is ready for the cold, serving seasonal dishes using locally sourced ingredients, Minnesota craft beers, and organic wines. New items include the cauliflower po' boy, harvest chili, braised beef tostada, and the pork banh mi. Find Seward Co-op Creamery Cafe at 2601 East Franklin Avenue in Minneapolis and online at coopcreamery.coop.
5: Hello, this is Ellen Krug with Hidden Edges Radio on Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. Join me this Sunday for an interview with James Lackett from Interact Center, who will talk about this remarkable theater company that mainly employs actors with disabilities. We'll all learn that having a disability isn't a bar to acting, and in fact, might very well be an asset. As I like to say, it's all about inclusivity. Hidden Edges Radio, challenging, passionate, perspective changing on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
1: With your AM950
10: weather, this is Eric Nelson. Tonight, a 20% chance of snow after midnight with lows of 27. Sunday has an 80% chance of precipitation with a high of 36 and a low of 28. Monday, expect 4 to 8 inches of snow with a high of 30 and a low around 14. AM950 is brought to you by Origins Eye Clinic. Origins Eye Clinic is a welcoming clinic that is locally owned and independent. Treating everything from routine care to emergency eye care. Doctors will spend plenty of time explaining and answering any of your questions. Located at off 66th and Lindale. Check out OriginsEyeClinic.com.
0: You are back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour one-year anniversary show. This is your host, Paul Metza. We did three shows surrounding Bob Dylan's 73rd birthday, May 24th, 2014. We started in Hibbing, went to Town, and ended up in New York. We are very excited to chat with Bob Dylan's first drummer from his band, The Golden Chords, fellow Iron Ranger and Finn, Mr. Leroy Hoykula, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us today.
13: Well, my pleasure, actually. I I do really enjoy talking to people from all over the world when they come here for young days. And uh, it gives me
0: something to do. Leroy then told us about playing music with a young Robert Zimmerman.
13: And then Bob had heard about it. So we were going to work one day in the summer heading for salmons and Sparrow's. And Bob said, Hey, how about, um, meeting my garage and start doodle playing. So, uh, we said, sure, heck yeah, this weekend's fine. So Saturday we met at Bob's garage and that was the start of the Golden Accords.
9: So
0: it was just two guitar players, Monty, Bob, and then you played drums. Right. Mm -hmm. So no bass player. So you were predating the white stripes by, uh, about 50 years.
13: Yeah, it's about it.
0: <laughs> Could you feel something right off the bat in that first afternoon that there was uh, some a spark and some magic there?
13: Well, it was it was kind of neat because Bob certainly wanted to be the center of attention. I have to admit that, and uh, we we're we're messing around. And, and Bob said, oh, okay, I'm just Monty. Just go ahead play the key of whatever was G or whatever." And uh, Monty was just messing around. And Bob starts singing a song. And we thought, boy, that's really great. And we went through the song, and when it was done, it was a ballad. It was very nice. And I said, wow, that was great, Bob. Let's do it again. He said, oh, no, I just made it up.
0: <laughs> boy, it came that quickly, even back then, didn't it? Right, yeah.
13: And he you uh, could tell that, you know, what it is music? It's feeling. And he had the feeling. He, he, was a, he could tell right away that he loves the music.
0: I had an archival interview with B.J. Rolson, Bob Dylan's 11th grade English teacher that I recorded in 2007.
14: When you read, you don't read in a vacuum, He you should tell the students. If you don't see yourself in what you read, close the book and go fishing,
0: you know. What grade was Bob in when you taught him? He was in 11th grade. 11th grade. What type of a student was he? Um, I had good students.
14: and he was one of them. Uh, they were all good, and
0: if they weren't good, I'd made them good, you know, possibly good, you know. What did it make you feel like when you saw, you know, a young Robert Zimmerman, uh, sounds like he was a very conscientious student, go out to make his way in, in the world and not only become known as, as a great folk singer, but also becoming one of America's great songwriters? Um... I remember this is so long ago you
14: know but I remember not because he's Bob Dylan but because he's Robert Zimmerman and uh, I remember distinctly uh, when he lived in a house where uh, he, you know this uh, and um, he called me up and uh, he said uh, come on over I want to talk to you I remember distinctly and uh, he went to this house I walked over and he uh, he met me at the door, and there are a few people in the in the living room. He says, "Let's sit in this booth over here. There's a little there's a little booth over there, I think. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, your breakfast booth. Right. And so we sat in there, and we talked. We talked for some time mm. because he was so excited about the uh, the way things going going so well for him in the cities. It was, it was not as difficult as he thought it would be hmm. to to enter the music the world of music.
0: Over the course of three Dylan episodes, we had the chance to talk folk music with Duluth blues man, Charlie Parr. I had a great opportunity yesterday to play a gig at the Ashland Folk Festival where I bumped into my old friend, Charlie Parr. I've known Charlie for over 10 years and uh, got to hear him he was just getting started. And hadn't heard him for several years, and it was just a really phenomenal, inspiring show, Charlie. You are really turned into one hell of a talent. Oh
9: well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. It means a lot to me.
0: It was. Uh, I love the banjo and the guitar, and uh, the fact that you, when you're doing those old traditional tunes, you do every, you do. It seems like every verse, you don't leave any out. I really enjoyed that.
13: Well,
2: yeah, yeah. I, you know, the,
9: the, the, the. the the kind of trajectory of those songs, you know, well, you know this better than anybody, but, okay, you know, you listen to those songs, and, and there are a lot of them are traveling verses, you know, so that they make, they, you hear them a lot of places, but in, in the context of certain old songs, those, those verses all fit together like, like someone really specifically sat down and planned it out that way, and that's the way I think of those songs, you know, I, I think of them as, as being, you know, uh, uh, a piece of a whole, you know, so I, I always, I always... Kind of, you know, leave all the verses in because I, 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 that's how the song seems to me like it's supposed to be played. But
0: during our second Dylan episode, we talked about Dylan in Dinky Town with Judy Larson and Spider John Kerner.
1: So we we
15: trade tunes. I can't remember the tunes that we played. They were, you know, they were pretty simple tunes. We didn't know too much, too many, you know, our our guitar playing got better as we went along, but, um, I know Kerner, Kerner, he played Alberta, let your hair hang down, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, he was just so, such a young guy, he was kind of serious, and Dylan was too, but he, Dylan was hungry, he was very hungry to, to learn things, and I, and, um, when he went to later he went to New York and he was gone for a while and that was when he met Woody Guthrie and he, I remember he came back came back one time and uh, he was going to play at the coffee break and uh, so I think Max Euler was setting it up setting some microphones up and. And I can remember Bob showing me. He said, "Look at this. He says I got Willie's, Woody's belt. He said this is Woody's belt. <laughs> he was so proud of it." And he said,
0: "Who wouldn't uh, be?"
15: Yeah, and he and he, um, uh, you know, he talked about the book, you know,
0: "Bound for Glory."
15: Yeah, and he and I remember he called that the Bible.
0: We caught up with legendary Spider John Kerner last week at the Mother's Day Ashland Folk Festival. We had a nice backstage conversation, and we're going to play a little bit of his performance from that same show. All right. I'm backstage with Spider John Kerner at the Ashland Folk Festival, Mother's Day 2014. And he's kind enough to uh, take a few minutes here and just... uh, answer a few of my questions do you remember your first gig in Dinky town
9: well I can't say for sure but it was probably in the scholar the 10 o'clock scholar and
0: where exactly was that what
9: is that building still there uh I don't know if the actual structure is still there or not but it sure doesn't look like it used to yeah there used to be apartments old funky apartments above that place where we used to party and like that and but the Dickey Town's all different than it used to be. Right? right, was that, did Red Nelson
0: run that joint?
9: I think Red had it for a while, there was a guy named Clark who had it for a while, Dave, another guy named Dave Lee had it for a while, yeah. So who was, uh, who was like playing that
0: that joint and others that time besides you?
9: Well, I was there, uh, Dave Ray played there, uh, Trying to think of the other guys, there was a guy named Cherry Gooch. Uh, Dylan would, Dylan came down there and played. Uh, it's it's hard to remember all of them, but did it was that he, did kind you, of a crowd. Did did you guys do some
0: some duo gigs together, you and Dylan?
9: Well, I don't I don't remember actually singing and playing with him. However, in his autobiography. He remembers it. Yeah, well, yeah, either, either he remembers it or he's making it up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we played, there used to be a place called the uh, Purple Onion over in St. Paul. I think it was on Snowing or something like that. And uh, we both played there and some other places. And at parties too, you know, it was kind of a free-for-all.
0: Right. Let me ask you, I know you, you've got to get going, you've had a long day. What, uh, Kerner Van Glover, did you guys do two Newport Folk Festivals? I know you. You just played one like last year
9: with your band. Yeah, Uh, back in the '60s. uh, Let's see, the three of us I think played in '64, and I was there on my own, or maybe with Tony. I I can't remember that for sure. In '65, which was the year Dylan went electric. Did uh, you see that show? Oh yeah, I was backstage when it happened. It was quite. What what was going on backstage? Well it's, it, it bothered a lot of people you know I mean they actually done I mean I, I know what they were going to be doing because I'd heard some rehearsal and it sounded great to me right but he got done playing his first song and I heard this sound coming from the audience and I didn't wonder what the hell is that and uh, I pulled myself over the fence and there was people who were booing. You hmm. know? And uh, there was a rumor that uh, Pete Seeger was going around with an ax, wanted to chop off the electric. <laughs> electric. And, Pete uh, Seeger, ax murderer. Yeah, and there was people crying and all that <laughs> stuff. Wow. But uh, like I say, six months later, they're all starting to try and do the same thing.
0: Greenwich Village in nineteen sixty one, he meets Maria Muldor
7: We see Bob come rushing by and he stopped and saw we were inside and he knocked on the on the door and so we let him in and he told told us he had cut his finger and he was, you know, very upset because he had a gig <laughs> that night and did we have a bandage and so we rummaged around in the kitchen and found him a band aid and washed it off and so forth and, and we told him you know we thought he was going to live and that he'd be fine and <laughs> and, uh, and so then you know and then we offered him a cup of coffee and 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 so i distinctly remember this we were all sitting on on uh, milk crates in the kitchen of this funky little coffee house and i think he felt kind of sheepish that he'd made such a big fuss about his boo boo but <laughs> he, um, he said hey thanks girls you want to hear a song i just wrote and so We actually really wanted to get back to our rehearsal, but just to be polite, we said, sure, Bob. And um, so he pulled out his guitar, and he played only a pawn in their game. Wow. And at that moment, I just had a major epiphany. It was like a big light bulb went off over my head. At that very moment, in that funky... Kitchen, I became a lifelong Bob Dylan fan, and that's why I'm speaking with you today. Because I still, so much, I'm impressed with with how he sees things and the way he writes about
12: them. Man, things
0: cause he rules. Stay tuned you. to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. We will be back right after these messages.
12: The two gingers just can't get enough of Paul Metzger. He's smooth, yet strong. A great mixer and very refreshing. The Two Gingers are his biggest fans. They're at practically every bar, club, and restaurant in Minnesota to see his shows. And now they've taken to following Paul around the country. Texas, New York, Nebraska. You never know where you may find the Two Gingers. Just ask the bartender for them. Two Gingers Whiskey. What could happen?
6: Chocolat Celeste is a true celebration. This is Colette, and we've created two-themed chocolate collections for this year's football playoffs. These chocolates are the world's finest artisan chocolates with distinct, unforgettable flavors that will sweeten your team's victory and soften the sting of defeat. Having a party? Skull! Check out our football-themed chocolates. We're an approved vendor through the NFL Business Connect program. Call 651-644-3823 or visit ChocolatCeleste.com. A
10: coalition of Minnesota advocacy and activist groups have united to commemorate the anniversary of the 2017 Women's March with a one-day conference for experienced and newly motivated activists to turn outrage into action for ongoing grassroots efforts in the work for social justice. The Men by Men 2018 Beyond Resistance Conference will be held January 28th at Harding High School in St. Paul. The conference centers around three themes, community building, effective activism skills, and understanding the issues. Dr. Rose Brewer, professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota will present the keynote entitled Forging Revolutionary Change in an Era of Right-Wing Reaction. Other planned sessions include presentations bridging the red-blue divide from Better Angels, Minnesota, women of color leaders in the social justice movement from Take Action, Minnesota, caucus training, and much more. So turn your resistance into action at the Min by Min 2018 Beyond Resistance Conference. Again, that's January 28th at Harding High School in St. Paul. The full schedule and registration is available at minbymin.org. That's mnxmn.org.
13: This is Ken Haglund of Minnesota Hospice inviting you to listen to our brand new show airing on AM 950 on Saturdays from noon to one. The Minnesota Hospice Show looks forward to discussing how we honor life and to exploring the physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional issues we experience throughout all stages of life. Learn how hospice is the new face of hope and how it's your benefit, your choice. Join us Saturdays at noon and check us out online at minnesotahospice.com.
5: I started going cold turkey. Well, at least when I'm in the car. I know I shouldn't do it, but it's so hard to stop. That's why I hide it from myself, so I won't be tempted.
6: I used to do it all the time. I stopped by locking it in my glove compartment. My friend used to do it way too much. Now I turn it off when we're in the car.
5: My solution is simple. I just don't do it. There are lots of ways to stop yourself and others from texting and driving. How will you stop? Tell us at
0: stoptextstopwrecks.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You are back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. On May 3rd, 2014, we celebrated what would have been Pete Seeger's 95th birthday and had the pleasure of speaking with Nora Guthrie. She told us how Pete Seeger, after hanging out with her dad, Woody, decided to become a folk singer.
8: So that's how they met and then right after they finished working on the songbook it was about june and uh during those years woody was still hitchhiking and traveling around Pete kind of got the bug in him that he might like to be a folk singer right. <laughs> like that you know
0: let's hit the road jack you.
8: Yeah, right. So, (laughs) Pete Pete was a Harvard guy. He didn't really know how to hit the road.
0: Right, right.
8: So, Woody was hitting the road, and Pete tagged along. And they were out for a couple of weeks together, traveling around the country, and by the time they got back, Pete went and told his parents, who were also kind of smart, uh, Harvard-styled people, uh, that he decided that he was going to leave Harvard and be a folk singer.
0: Oh, they were and impressed Woody, with that, weren't they? Yeah,
8: they were awfully <laughs> impressed, yeah. And, uh, and he figured, he told his parents, he said, I'll never starve because Woody showed him that you could always play music for some place to sleep and something to eat. And that's all you really needed in life. And that was the big beginning of
0: We talked with Midwest country legend Sherwin Linton a week before he celebrated his 75th birthday and talked a little bit about his new fan base. Tell us the story about uh, the couple of young cats, rockabilly cats, you met at the uh, nightcap.
2: Yeah, really. They came into this uh, nightcap place where we were playing uh, once in a while on Wednesday nights, just for uh, fun.
0: And it's in—I have to say—it's in my neighborhood in the Northeast, and we like to call it the Daycap. But
2: boy, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, we had a good time there, and uh, these couple of retro-looking uh, young. Kids probably in college, and they had this slick back hair and the nice the clothes that fit the image. And they said, "We just love you. You play all those old Johnny Cash and Elvis and Buck Owens and Lefty Frizzell, and they named a few other classic country singers. You sound just like you know that should be like the original the styles. We just love you. We love you so much. We named our bong after you." <laughs> and I says, "What?" He says, "We named our bong after you." I says, um, what is a bong? Because I thought, well, if, if they're naming something after me, it must be uh, alive. And they said, you mean you don't know what that is? I said, well, no, I, I really don't. They said, that's even cooler. So uh, I, I said, what is it? And they explained it to me. And I said, well, yes, well, I, I've been in some head shops. I know what you're talking about now, but I didn't know it was called a bong. They said, well, what did you do when you were young to get high? And I said, well, I stuck on a stack of Little Richard records. (laughs) That's even cooler.
0: (laughs) We caught up with 82-year-old Mississippi Delta blues man Leo Bud Welch the night before he had a gig at Hell's Kitchen in downtown Minneapolis at his hotel room. When did you start uh, playing?
3: Well, I went to my first cousin and so me and his uh first cousin, he ordered the guitar. Well he make long long story so. He sold the guitar with God for garden. So Garden so you get the guitar and then he went on and uh, he went on and uh got it uh all of the guitar we went to we don't didn't I mail off we were at We didn't have no post office, you know, in town or in stores and nothing, so. We wouldn't pick the guitar up, and so he told us he didn't want us messing with his guitar. But when he go off, I called it Colton in the old days. That's what the old people call it. When he go off Colton, me and his brother would get the guitar and We'd get it be a like bangling and a hammering on it. And so he came in one day. We had that music going. He said, I thought I told you, boy, not to mess with my guitar. We said, you did. He said, i tell you what. I ain't going to say nothing else to y'all about playing my guitar. Y'all playing better than I am. That's <laughs> got started, watching him.
0: It was the 30th anniversary of Prince's movie Purple Rain, and we had the chance to talk with Dr. Matt Fink, the original keyboard player in Prince's band, The Revolution. So did you travel the whole world with Prince while you played with The Revolution over the years? That's correct, Yes, yeah.
16: I spent 12 years with Prince.
0: It must have been an amazing thing when you were there From the beginning, just to watch the whole phenomenon grow. You did open for the Rolling Stones.
16: We did open for the Rolling Stones in, oh, could have been late 1980, early 81. I can't remember the exact date. I'd have to look that up. But uh, Mick Jagger was uh, highly impressed with Prince. Oh, I bet. And wanted to introduce him more to the world through their fan base. So they wanted to, to help break prints, obviously, and they invited us out to do three or four or five shows. Uh, they were stadium, indoor stadium, dome wow. stadium shows, except for the first ones, uh, which were at the L.A. Coliseum, in front of 90,000 people. Jay Giles banned on the bill. You had George Thorogood and the Destroyers, uh, our us and the Stones. Wow. And we were the very first group to go on, of course, and our set was only, you know, maybe half hour, 35 minutes long. So we take the stage, and I'd say about the first 50 rows of people, half of them, gave us the the finger. (laughs) (laughs) That was... (laughs) <laughs> no,
0: that that was Thorogoods fans.
16: Whoever they were, it was Thurgood, uh Stones, whatever, you know, it was the hardcore uh, Hells Angels people that the Stones would attract. And because, you know, of course, they used to be their bodyguards back in the day. Right. And uh, well, anyway, uh, I, I thought, well, what happened to the 60s crowd, the peace and love crowd? Why, why are they being so <laughs> mean to us? And so they, they were kind of offended by Prince's image, I think, because in those days he, he was wearing a trench coat, bikini briefs, thigh-high stockings and high heel boots, <laughs> and a bandana with no shirt. So something, <laughs> apparently that offended even the 60s crowd. I don't know why. <laughs> Still a great look, though. Still now a great you, <laughs> look. When you look back on it now, yeah. It would, it would never work for me, but, no, you know. No.
0: We like to keep our eye out for up-and-coming talent and in the middle of July, we had Texas Songbird Carson McCone on. We believe you're going to be hearing a lot more from this woman in years to come.
14: All right, I'm going to do this tune. It's called "Dram Shop Gal." It'll be on this upcoming Good Horse Records release that uh, should be coming out in around November, hopefully. Yeah, it's called "Dram Shop Gal." Mm-hmm. Keep me from downtown.
0: Thanks for listening to the first anniversary show of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Brad Knobber, recorded at the Minneapolis Media Institute. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors this year and you in the listening audience. Follow us on Facebook at Wall of Power Radio, online at wallofpowerradio.com. This is your host, Paul Metza, reminding you to be kind and make someone happy.